You're listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is The Evan Solomon Show. Today, with special guest host, Tamara Cherry. Good morning and good afternoon, Canada. When I just uh, logged on to my Zoom connection to host this show, I said good afternoon to the technical producer, Chris, because he's in Ottawa. And he said good morning to me because I'm in Saskatchewan. I love it. Look at us coming together through different time zones. We have an awesome show coming at you today. And thank you for listening. We will be looking forward to your calls and texts a little bit later on in the show. But first, a bombshell exclusive today from the Toronto Star's Queen's Park Bureau Chief, Rob Benzie. Benzie reporting that three months before residents of Toronto and Ottawa head to the polls in municipal elections, Premier Doug Ford is poised to give U.S.-style so-called strong mayor powers to both cities. The dramatic change, Benzie writes, would dilute the influence of municipal councillors in Toronto and Ottawa, ensuring far more authority for the mayors over financial matters and appointments. Now, Doug Ford, who lost his bid to become Toronto's mayor to the current mayor, John Tory, in 2014, has long been a proponent of mayors having greater clout than councillors. Benzie reports that Ford wants the Toronto and Ottawa mayors empowered to oversee budgets and act unilaterally if need be. Citing confidential sources, Benzie writes that the reforms are designed to improve city government and would be unveiled within weeks by Municipal Affairs Minister Steve Clark. Now, speaking with reporters in Toronto this morning, Mayor John Tory said he recently had an informal conversation with the Premier. I had a, a meeting with him not too long ago, and in that meeting there was a passing reference to, um, you know, to we've got to find ways to get more housing built faster, um, and that that was the sort of substance of it. And in the passing, it was mentioned that you know you have to be able to show you know to, to show and exercise leadership in doing that. But that that was the substance of the conversation. That is the truth. But Tory said he would not comment on speculation. There's nothing in writing. There's nothing in front of cabinet. There's nothing that's been put to, you know, uh, in front of us to, to review. So I, I, I don't know what it means. I just know that it means my approach to the job, no matter what they do, will not change. What does that mean? You've got to work with your colleagues. You've got to work with the public service. You've got to work with the people uh, to get things done. And that's why I'm here. I'm here to get things done. So my interest is in making sure that anything we can possibly do, for example, to get more housing built faster, I'm interested in that. Now, of course, uh, voters in Ontario likely recall that during his last provincial election campaign just this past spring, Doug Ford promised to build 1.5 million homes over the next 10 years. This aligns with Toronto's priorities where there is a vast shortage of affordable housing. I would just like to see us have the ability as a city to be able to respond in a more nimble fashion, uh, meaning including faster, uh, to things like the challenge of getting affordable housing built. And, you know, some of that's on us uh, to do, and some of that is the surrounding kind of legislation of all different kinds. But these are things where I think we have to speed up the pace of how we get things done. And Mayor Tory said he thinks the public would understand that need to speed things up. They know sometimes that from a day you buy a piece of land to the day you can actually have somebody move in can be five, six, seven years. And, you know, with a crisis in front of us on housing, for example, uh, I think a lot of people would say you should be exploring various things to try and speed that up. And that's indeed what we should do. But agree as the public may or may not, I want to take your calls on this a bit later, not all city councillors are in agreement. Here's Toronto City Councillor Josh Matlow speaking with John Moore on News Talk 1010 this morning. I'm not happy about Doug 
board's decision. Um, you know, four years ago, around this time, the Premier made a unilateral decision to change our, our election after it had begun. And now, without consultation with council, without any discussion whatsoever, we just read through the newspaper that the, that the basic framework of our local democracy might change. As Councillor Matlow, Matlow alluded to in that clip, if this plan goes ahead, it would not be the first time Premier Ford enacted sweeping changes in the middle of a municipal election campaign. Matlow was not pleased when, in the midst of the last municipal election, he used his powers to cut the number, that is, Ford used his powers to cut the number of Toronto City Council seats in half. At the time, Matlow called Ford a, quote, dishonest populist. He said that Ford decided to ignore charter rights to settle scores against city council. The Supreme Court of Canada, of course, later ruled that the Ford government had been acting within its legal powers to cut the size of council. Councillor Matlow told John Moore this morning that the plans reported in the Star are unnecessary. So, you know, not only is, I think, it a wrong step to create a strong, you know, U.S.-style type of strong mayor system in Toronto, but I also think it's just completely unnecessary. I think it's much healthier to have a diversity of opinion. Councillor Matlow pointed out that the Toronto mayor already wins most votes in council and has the most influence than any other member of council. And under our existing legislation, he has more carrots and sticks than any other member of council uh, to determine an agenda. Uh, He has the ability to appoint the chairs of the executive committee who are typically loyal to him and his agenda. He says that he's disappointed he had to find out about this through the newspaper, as many city councillors did, and he says he will ask council to lobby Queen's Park. In summary... Our our local democracy in Toronto, no matter one's opinion of exactly what it should be, I fundamentally believe should be determined by Toronto, by Toronto Council, by the people of Toronto... And we've got a lot more on this story coming up after the break. Uh, Toronto City Councillor Josh Matlow did put out a statement this morning uh, with an urgent member's motion titled Taking a Stand for Toronto's Local Democracy. The motion requests that the province not implement a strong mayor system in Toronto, noting that, quote, such a move would erode democracy by stifling local advocacy on the most important issues affecting Torontonians. But again, we've got a lot more on that coming up after the break. We We'll be hearing from Ottawa City Councillor and mayoral candidate Catherine McKenney, as well as Toronto City Councillor Brad Bradford. And after that, I'm very interested to hear what you have to say on this. Do you think that this is a good move? Are you frustrated that uh, sometimes it can take so long to get certain things going in uh, the Toronto and and Ottawa councils or maybe your local city council outside of these cities? I want to hear from you at 1-855-633-1010 a bit later in the show. And as always, you can send me a text message at 71010. But we've got a whole lot more also going on today. One of the issues we're going to be discussing is the issue of spousal sponsorships in the immigration process. Now, this is an issue that is very close to my heart. I'm not sure if I've discussed this on the radio before, but my husband of the last, well, more than a decade, um, he was actually sponsored by me. I sponsored him. He's from Brazil. I've talked about that a lot. 
and we were living together. We are common law partners and I sponsored him to become a permanent resident. This was not an easy process. And I couldn't help but thinking throughout it all. I mean, me as somebody who has English as a first language, I've got all these points of privilege uh, uh, on top of so many other people who go through the immigration process. I kept I kept thinking throughout the process that this would not be an easy thing for anybody that first doesn't have English as a second language or doesn't have an advocate for them. It was an absolute hell process to go through, but it worked out for us. But I know a lot of stories from people that I've spoken to over the years where it, it was even worse and it, it perhaps didn't work out. Stories uh, where, you know, immigration officers didn't believe that somebody was actually in a genuine relationship with the person that they were trying to sponsor. And I know that the, the fake relationships make their way through the system. But I also know that there's some genuine relationships that do not ever make their way through the system. And a little bit later in the show, we're going to be speaking with a woman who says that she has fallen. She and her husband in Jamaica have fallen victim to just that. She is worried that her husband will not be allowed in Canada in time for the birth of their baby in the fall. We'll be speaking with her. And also this show, we've got a bit of a disgusting but horrifyingly fascinating segment coming up in the next hour, within this hour rather, uh, where we're going to be speaking with somebody about why the West Coast off Canada is being treated like a toilet bowl by cruise ships. Uh, in addition to that, of course, it is Wednesday. That means that we've got our war room panelists that are going to be joining us to go through all the biggest stories facing uh, Canadian politicians, most notably federal politicians. Of course, lots to discuss today on that. And we've got some lighter uh, segments to come as well. So be sure to tune in. Again, I'm Tamara Cherry filling in for Evan Solomon. Thank you so much for joining us. Of course, if you ever want to listen back to the show or catch an interview you may have missed, you can listen to the Evan Solomon Show podcast. This is The Evan Solomon Show with special guest host Tamara Cherry on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. The Toronto Star is reporting today a bombshell exclusive from Rob Benzie that Doug Ford will give greater U.S. style powers to the mayors of Toronto and Ottawa. The dramatic change would dilute the influence of municipal councillors, ensuring far more authority for the mayors over financial matters and appointments. Now, City Councilor Josh Matlow joins News Talk 1010's More in the Morning today. He is not a fan of this plan. I'm not happy about Doug Ford's decision. Um, you know, four years ago, around this time, the Premier made a unilateral decision to change our, our election after it had begun. And now, without consultation with council, without any discussion whatsoever, we just read through the newspaper that the, that the basic framework of our local democracy might change. Councillor Matlow further said that this is completely unnecessary. So, you know, not only is, I think, it a wrong step to create a strong, you know, U.S.-style type of strong mayor system in Toronto, but I also think it's just completely unnecessary. I think it's much healthier to have a diversity of opinion. 
This morning, Councillor Matlow put out a statement with an urgent member's motion titled Taking a Stand for Toronto's Local Democracy. The motion requests that the province not implement a strong mayor system in Toronto, noting that such a move would erode democracy by stifling local advocacy on the most important issues affecting Torontonians. Joining us now with their thoughts are Ottawa City Councillor and mayoral candidate Catherine McKenney and Toronto City Councillor Brad Bradford. Thank you both for taking the time. Thanks, Councillor McKenney, I'd like to start with you. Uh, this morning, you put out a tweet calling the reported plan an anti-democratic move that takes decision-making away from residents and their council representative. You wrote that we need to empower people, not centralize power to the head of council. Now, you are, of course, an outspoken advocate for affordable housing. Toronto's mayor says that this could get affordable housing built more quickly, and that certainly seems to be the message that the Premier's office will be pushing. What does that bring to mind for you? Well, I certainly uh, don't agree that that's how we're going to get um, a sufficient amount of affordable housing. Affordable housing takes uh, serious investments, which uh, which have not been forthcoming. Um, so we need we need money to build affordable housing. And there are there are other uh, processes that can be strengthened to ensure that you know when we have a development application in front of us uh, to build affordable housing that you know that we can that we can move that through the system uh, quicker uh, to make sure that uh, it's built quicker, but to take away decision making power from from residents of cities and their council representatives uh, certainly is uh, is not uh, the um, the silver bullet that the province is making it out to be. Toronto City Councillor Brad Bradford, what were your what was your reaction last night to this proposed plan? Well, we're in the midst of a very heavy council agenda, the final one of the term. We're doing 450-plus items, and we saw this break in the star. And uh, obviously, we were all sitting there, and there was a lot of questions because there wasn't a lot of information. We expect more details will come out in the days and weeks ahead. But, you know, I think we have to be open-minded to these sorts of things. If you talk to a lot of Torontonians out there, uh, maybe outside of Twitter, but talk to Torontonians, talk to them at their doorstep, they would probably assume that there already was a strong mayor system. You know, everyone has the opportunity to vote for mayor. Everybody has the opportunity to vote for their councillors and their trustees. And all elected officials are accountable to our constituents. In the Toronto case, there's, you know, 3 million people here in the city and a lot of folks are voting for mayor. So I think there's still very much an opportunity for for us to work together uh, with the head of council, the mayor, whoever that may be. And and at the end of the day, people elect us to get things done, to move things forward. And it's no secret that sometimes that can be really challenging uh, at City Hall. So if there is an opportunity to expedite, move our big agenda on housing and transportation and road safety forward, then I think we should be open-minded about it, consider it and give it a fair shake. Okay, interesting to hear that. Now, I just got a note from uh, my producer that we have a new clip from Premier Doug Ford, uh, who spoke about this this morning. Chris, would you mind playing that clip? We'll get into the details later, but yes, uh, similar to that, and two-thirds of the council can overrule the, the mayor, but we'll, we'll get more into the, the uh, in-depth once everything goes goes through there. So uh, very a lot of context in that clip. Uh, he had just been asked by a reporter whether mayors would have a veto power over council. I, I do expect I mean, the Toronto Star story said this more or said last night that uh, Rob Banzi reported rather that um, this would likely be announced in the weeks to come. Now, uh, Councillor McKenney, you are running for mayor of Ottawa. How will this affect your mayoral campaign? 
Well, you know, again, um, I am, I've, I've started going uh, to the doors across the city. It's certainly not uh, an issue that's uh, been raised to date. I imagine that it will be. So I will have a, an opportunity to, to hear from people across the city. Uh, but at this, at this point, I have to say that I have uh, never once heard anyone in, in the city of Ottawa anyway uh, suggest that the mayor should have uh, more power and be able to, uh, to that U.S. style of veto over, over council decision. So uh, it certainly will open up the discussion around that, but uh, it, uh, you know, I will, uh, I will uh, move forward as, uh, as planned with my campaign. Now, it's interesting to speak with you because I know that you have, uh, from what I understand, you've been very much against something that's come up over and over again in Ottawa City Council for the past number of years. And that is something known as Watson Watson's Club, where uh, uh, Mayor Watson has some councillors that are very much on his side when it comes to some contentious motions. How do you think that this sort of plan would impact that sort of thing, Councillor McKenney? Well, from what we know uh, so far, which is very little, but from what we know, if you if you look at Ottawa, uh, we we have a a strong mayor in terms of his support on council. Uh, you know, there's no uh, denying. You can go back and look at uh, every vote, and you know he wins everyone with about 15 votes out of uh, out of 24. So we've already had um, a, a system in Ottawa where um, you know the decisions essentially come down to to one person. I don't believe that any one person uh, knows what's best for a large city, myself included. I think that we as uh, elected representatives have a responsibility to sit around the table, to have discussion, to have debate, and to and to vote on issues after giving careful consideration. That doesn't mean that things uh, need to be held up. Uh, we have moved forward in this city on, on issues. Some people think uh, too quickly uh, in, in some cases, but uh, certainly uh, the, the, the democratic process has suffered as a result. Uh, things like just having... Um, you know, certain uh, uh, on certain committees, uh, a huge swaths of the city have been cut out of representation on certain committees uh, because of this. uh, What we have in Ottawa is a a strong, uh, strong mayor in terms of uh, support on council. So, uh, Councillor Bradford, considering uh, Councillor McKenney's comments there, I mean, John Tory in Toronto as mayor, he certainly has his allies on city council. How is that not enough in your view? Why why would he need more powers beyond the influence he has over over his own allies? Well, I think in either instance, you know, this mayor has definitely demonstrated that he's collaborative. He works well with council colleagues. He works well with the province and with the federal government. And that's what folks elect us to do. Uh, you know, the, the partisan bickering and sniping is not what Torontonians expect from their elected officials. And uh, and so, you know, I don't think that is going to change. And I would hope whoever is successful as mayor in the fall election continues that. But there are instances, uh, certain votes and, and, you know, multi-tenant housing, rooming houses, is is one where it was going to be a very close vote uh, and the votes were just not there in this term to do that and yet that is such a powerful and important policy for us to drive forward when it comes to addressing our housing crisis in Toronto when it comes to taking care of the most vulnerable that is something that would have been great to pass this term and that that's an example of something where you might want to uh, use those authorities if you have them to build more housing to get that done you know in in my three and a half years on the job as a first term counselor I can tell you that one 
of the biggest impediments to building more housing, more supply, uh, more affordable housing is, in fact, local councillors. Uh, and Councillor Bradford, I, I apologize. I have to end it there because we're coming up against the break. But I appreciate you, Councillor Brad Bradford in Toronto and Councillor Catherine McKenney, also a mayoral candidate in Ottawa. Thank you so much for taking the time today. Coming up after the break, I want to hear from you. one 855 Do you think these cities mayors need more power or is this a bad move? one 855 You can text me at 71010. Evan Solomon is away. Sitting in, here's Tamara Cherry on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Hello, thank you for listening. I want to hear from you on this next one, 1-855-633-1010, or you can send me a text message, as many of you already have, to 71010. As we've been talking about all show, there was a bombshell exclusive from the Queen's Park Bureau Chief of the Toronto Star, Rob Benzie, last night reporting that Doug Ford is planning on giving greater U.S.-style powers to the mayors of Toronto and Ottawa. This news comes in the midst of municipal election campaigns in both cities. The dramatic change would dilute the influence of municipal councillors, ensuring far more authority for the mayors over financial matters and appointments. I want to hear from you. Do you think this is a good idea? Have you been frustrated with... Uh, Things moving too slowly through your local city councillor. Should mayors have more powers or is this, as Ottawa City Councillor Catherine McKenney said in our last segment, is this would this be an undemocratic move? We heard from Premier Doug Ford a short while ago. He was speaking with reporters. One of them asked him whether mayors will have a veto power over council. We'll get into the details later, but yes, uh, similar to that, and two-thirds of the council can overrule the, the mayor, but we'll, we'll get more into the, the uh, in-depth once everything goes goes through there. Doug Ford further, for Premier Doug Ford further said that mayors have to be accountable. It allows them the ability, not the power. I always say you have a tremendous amount of uh, responsibility and ability to make the, make the appropriate changes. Now, we heard from uh, Councillor Josh Matlow on a Toronto radio station this morning who was uh, adamantly against the move. He's already put forward a member's motion uh, asking for this move not to go ahead. During his latest provincial campaign, Doug Ford promised to build 1.5 million homes over 10 years. Now, this aligns with Toronto's priorities where there is a vast shortage of affordable housing. Here is Mayor John Tory speaking with reporters this morning. I would just like to see us have the ability as a city to be able to respond in a more nimble fashion. Uh, meaning including faster uh, to things like the challenge of getting affordable housing built. And, you know, some of that's on us uh, to do, and some of that is the surrounding kind of legislation of all different kinds. But these are things where I think we have to speed up the pace of how we get things done. Further, Mayor Tory said that he thinks the public would understand the need to speed things up. They know sometimes that from a day you buy a piece of land to the day you can actually have somebody move in can be five, six, seven years. And, you know, with a crisis in front of us on housing, for example, uh, I think a lot of people would say you should be exploring various things to try and speed that up. And that's indeed what we should do. Again, I want to hear from you. What do you think of this proposed plan or this reported plan? Uh, Mayor Tory was calling it speculation today, so he wouldn't comment too much on it. You give us a call, 1-855-633-1010. And let's head to the phone line. So we just heard from Mayor John Tory, who sounds like he would absolutely be in support of this sort of plan. Uh, Kevin, you're calling from Gatineau. What do you think of this sort of idea? 
I'm against it. I like more oversight and uh, democracy to representation. I'll, you know, begrudgingly, I'll accept sluggishness and inertia as a result of that. Um, you know, I could. It's easier if there's one person making more decisions that the corporate interests will get more sway, and you'll see afterwards a lot more people. Once they retire from politics, oh, now he's making $3 million as a CEO or something from some, or, you know, board or something like that. So it allows too much corruption to seep in, I would think. I, I'd rather have more representation, not less, even though, you know, it's slower. But, but Kevin, um, is there really a difference? I mean, when you think about your, your own or city council in Ottawa, uh, where Mayor Watson already has all of his ally, all of his allies on council, but help him to get a lot of his uh, ideas through. Would this really make much of a difference? Do you think it makes a difference because it's one person getting elected as opposed to working with a group? So you'll have people, mm-hmm. let's say in Ottawa, then maybe in Canada and Orleans have different things. So sure, it slows it down, but at least they'll work together. Whereas a, a, a mayor could could realistically favor a region over another, a neighborhood or, you know, you know, too, too much concentrated power is not, is something that that makes me nervous. Uh, Why not, why don't we say why have a council at all? Right, right. All right, Kevin, thank you very much for your time. Uh, Thank you very much for your call. Jeff, you're calling from Mississauga. This move would not impact your local city council, but what are you thinking hearing the news today? You know, I think Doc Ford just shoots from the hip. People don't think about what he's doing. Imagine if Rob Ford had the powers Doug is trying to give to the city of Toronto right now. You know, I used to listen to Doug Ford on another radio station. Every Thursday morning he would come on. He would bring confidential documents from the city and discuss it in public. He wanted to take away all the privileges from the councillors, their credit cards, their office budget, all sorts of nonsense. You give this kind of power to a mayor, Tory might be um, level-headed, even though I don't trust him as farther than I can throw him, but he might be more level-headed than Rob Ford was. But another mayor is going to come to this city with Rob Ford's temperament and judgment, and then you have this kind of power installed in a mayor like Rob Ford. Imagine what Toronto is going to be like. These things have to be thought out. And I don't think Doug takes any time to think about anything. He just does what he thinks is popular and what can get him at the top of the newscast. This is a stupid, boneheaded idea. The mayor of Ottawa does what he does because he has to seek the, the, the support of those 15 or 16 councillors that vote with him. He has to be able to convince them. You give a mayor the kind of power Doug is trying to give to the mayors, he doesn't need those 16 councillors anymore. He doesn't need to be conciliatory. He can just say, this is my way, and I'm doing it. This is nonsense. We have to stop this popularity BS that's going on, where people think that whatever sounds good is good policy. This is boneheaded. Jeff, Jeff, thanks so much for your for your time and, and for your comments. One thing I will point out, though, uh, in terms of your comments regarding Doug Ford shooting from the hip, 
Uh, this municipal reform has long been a Ford preoccupation. Rob Benzie in the Star uh, writing in his story that first hit the uh, online last night, he pointed out that um, this was an idea that was first broached in Doug Ford's 2016 book. Um, in which he wrote that if I ever get to the provincial level of politics, municipal affairs is the first thing that I would want to change. And indeed, uh, one of the first things that he did as premier of this province was cut down city council in half in Toronto. That went through in the midst of the last municipal election campaign. Bernie, you're calling from Ajax. It sounds like you are not going to agree with Jeff in Mississauga. Um, I grew up in Etobicoke. I lived in the uh, amalgamated city for a long time, then it fled to the suburbs. We need a strong mayor system. The council system we have right now, they're way too parochial. The mayor is voted upon by or able to be voted upon by every eligible voter in the city of Toronto. Each councillor is only voted upon by the council candidate voters in their ward. So the mayor really should have that power. And I think it's about dang time. All right. All right. Bernie from Ajax, thanks for your call. I think we have time for one more quick call. We're into our last uh, our last minute here. Reginald from Toronto, go ahead. Hi. Uh, so my view on this is that I don't believe that John Tory should be getting veto power if he is elected. He's already been bringing the city down. He's uh, is the, the, L- the LRT on Eglinton is a complete failure. Over 140 jobs lost, and they're over budget by $340 million. And I don't see giving John Tory, if he is elected, um, veto power and giving him more power just to bring the city down more. Not much change has happened over the last eight years, and we need to create real affordable living, clean up the homelessness here and reduce violence and crime in the city. And we need change. And if um, me... I don't believe I would need the veto power because with my plan for the city, I believe that the councillors will vote for the change that I'm about to bring about in the city if I'm elected for mayor of Toronto. And, and I, yeah, I should point out the Reginald, you're calling from Toronto. You are running for uh, mayor of Toronto. I've got to end it there because we're coming up against the break. But thank you all for your calls and your text. I didn't have time to get to the text, but I'm sure we'll be talking about this later in the war room coming up in the next hour. But first... Why are cruise ships dumping on us? Why are they treating us like a toilet bowl, dumping billions of liters of toxic waste in Canada? We're going to get into that, bombshell. Coming up after the break, I'm Tamara Cherry in for Evan Solomon. Welcome back to the Evan Solomon Show. Today with special guest host, Tamara Cherry, on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Hey, this is Tamara Cherry reporting live. Reporting live. I'm so used to saying that from my years reporting at CTV News. Reporting live. I am now broadcasting live from my home in Regina, Saskatchewan. Last night from this very home, I was cruising the Toronto Star website, as I do many times a day, and I came across a headline that read, they treat us like a toilet bowl. Well, if that is not going to make me click on a story, I don't know what is. 
Who's treating us like a toilet bowl? Why are they treating us like a toilet bowl? Our next guest, I'm hoping, will be able to shed some light on this uh, most disgusting and uh, infuriating topic, really. Michael Bissonnette is a staff lawyer for West Coast Environment Law, uh, one of the organizations that is behind a a report that was recently released on this uh, toilet bowl issue. Michael, thanks so much for taking the time today. Yeah, thank you for having me. So, Michael, who is treating us as a toilet bowl and why? Um, so, so cruise ships um, on the west coast of British Columbia um, are, in effect, uh, treating us as a toilet bowl. Um, and the reason is our own government regulations. Um, so we, we put out a report uh, recently um, looking at uh, cruise ship dumping regulations on the west coast of North America and what we found that was really shocking was that uh, cruise ship dumping regulations in Canada are actually quite less strict than they are in our neighboring jurisdictions. So, for example, in Washington State, uh, in Alaska, and, and in California. And so it really, um, the effect of that, of our lax regulations, is that cruise ships have a legal incentive to, to hold um, some of the pollution that they that they dump while they're in American waters and hold on to it until they arrive um, in Canadian waters near our uh, coastal communities and our coastal um, shorelines. So how big of a difference are we talking? Like if you're testing the water off the coast of Vancouver and the water off the coast of Alaska, how much of a difference are you seeing there? Well, so, so just to give you an example, a concrete example, uh, so sewage, which is, um, you know, one of the main sources of pollution um, that these ships produce, just like, um, I mean, they are the size of small cities, and just like small cities, they, they produce a lot of sewage and, 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 and that kind of waste. And in Washington State, where a lot of these Alaskan cruise ships uh, depart from, uh, from Seattle, they actually are not allowed to discharge their sewage at all in the waters until they arrive at the Canadian border. And so hmm. um, if you're on that kind of trip, um, all the sewage that you're producing is not going to be dumped in those waters until they arrive in Canada. So what would happen if Canadian authorities tightened up their restrictions? Like if, if these cruise ships, I mean, might they not have a place to dump at all? Yeah, so, um, so we certainly can. And in fact, the government this year, the Transport Canada, announced measures to try to address these issues. Um, unfortunately, the measures are just mandatory, or sorry, are not mandatory. They're voluntary at this point. Um, they were developed uh, with cruise ships. Um, but there's a lot of solutions um, that are already being used in the state um, to address these. So I'll just give you two examples. But uh, so, for example, I talked about um, Washington State, and they have a, a no discharge of sewage area there. And what they have instead is facilities where this sewage can be pumped out um, in a responsible way and treated in a responsible way. Um, mm. The other really big source of pollution from these ships is what's called scrubber wash water, which is what they use. Um, they've only been doing this in the last decade or so, but with new clean uh, fuel standards, um, some ships have opted, instead of adopting clean fuel standards, they're using these scrubbers to clean the exhaust uh, uh, from their ships. But the problem is that all of that uh, 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 wash water that's cleaning this exhaust is just being dumped um, into our oceans and, and into Canadian waters. 
And in uh, California, they've actually banned the use of these scrubbers and, and this technique of dumping all of this waste in the water. And California still has quite a busy, there's, there's hundreds of cruise ships that still sail in California. There's a big cruise ship industry there. And so we can see that there are alternatives that have been implemented in places like Washington and California, and they do still have cruise ships. So um, it is something we can do, and it's not inconsistent with having a cruise ship industry. Yeah. And, you know, it sounds like it would be more inconvenient for cruise ships. I mean, of course, they're going to dump in Canadian waters because it's a lot easier to do so. But it seems so very Canadian to say we've got these regulations, but only if you want to abide by them. They're voluntary. Why do you think that they would they would go that route? Why go the voluntary route? Yeah, we were very disappointed to see that these were uh, only voluntary in nature. Um, they were, I think the explanation from the government right now is that they're going to use the 2022 cruise ship season as a trial run to see how these new or non or voluntary measures will work out. And then they're going to reassess for the next cruise ship season. Um, and they've even told us that, uh, perhaps down the line, but we're only talking four or five years from now, they might actually, uh, update their regulations. And um, that's the kind of approach that uh, I don't think most British Columbians would uh, really feel safe about having such a cautious approach um, where they're doing this with cruise ship industry, but without the input of the rest of the public. Um, and, and frankly, to just say, we'll see what happens this year as billions of, of liters of pollution are continuing to be dumped in our waters and, you know, um, and continue to impact our salmon runs and, and our ecosystems here. I think that's something that most British Columbians would not find acceptable. Yeah, and, and we should point out that uh, the report produced by Stand Earth and your organization, West Coast Environmental Law, found that cruise ships en route to Alaska from the U.S. discharge roughly 31 billion litres of waste in Canadian waters every year. Uh, and that was before COVID-19 and included in uh, protected areas. I, I should also say that we've talked about sewage, but uh, we're also talking about uh, gray water, which flows from the kitchens, showers, laundry and more, uh, scrubber wash water, uh, which uh, made up of majority of all cruise ship waste and is arguably the most damaging. You work, I understand, uh, on marine issues as a lawyer. We've just got a minute left here, uh, Michael Bissonnette. Uh, but what impact is this happen- having on on marine life, on our marine ecosystems. Yeah, so what, I think one thing that's really important to understand about that is that, uh, and this is in a recent report from World Wildlife Fund, but uh, cruise ships make up about 2% of the ships in Canadian waters. And in this report, they found that over 60% of the pollution that's being dumped into our waters is coming from these ships. So when we talk about ocean dumping from ships, Almost two-thirds of that problem is coming from these cruise ships who aren't, you know, this isn't essential travel. This isn't essential goods coming to Canada. This is discretionary travel in our waters through pristine ecosystems that we all cherish and love. And, um, And that's the kind of volume of pollution that we're seeing here. So I think most Canadians and cruise ship travelers would be pretty shocked to know that. Yeah, absolutely. Michael Bissonnette, we've got to leave it there. Thanks so much for your time. That's Michael Bissonnette. Uh, he is a staff lawyer for West Coast Environmental Law. If you want to check out that story, just uh, Google, they treat us like a toilet bowl and it'll bring you to the Toronto Star. Coming up after the break, we have the War Room. It is the Wednesday War Room. I'm Tamara Cherry in for Evan Solomon. Thank you for listening.
You're listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is The Evan Solomon Show. Today, with special guest host, Tamara Cherry. It was this morning when our producer, Sam, informed me because it's Wednesday. It is the war room. Let me be perfectly clear. Putting out misinformation. And we hear that. Misleading politics. What's really important here. Spreading it online. Unequivocally. The war room. Okay, that that voice of God just uh, said it a lot better than I did. The War Room, though, I, I had forgotten all about this delightful segment. Segments on Wednesdays. I'm so happy to welcome Zane Velgia, political campaign strategist and partner at Northweather. He formerly worked with Calgary Mayor Nahid Nenshi and Alberta NDP leader Rachel Notley. Also on the line is Tom Mulcair, CTV political analyst and former NDP leader. And of course, Tim Powers, chairman of Summa Strategies and Managing Director of Abacus Data. Thank you all for joining me today. Hey, Tamara. Hey, Tamara. We've got got a lot to dive into today. Uh, We spent much of the show talking about this uh, bombshell exclusive from Rob Benzie in the Toronto Star uh, today, talking about, or rather I should say last night, talking about a plan that we can expect coming down the pipes from Doug Ford to create a, a... more a system in in Toronto and Ottawa city politics that would give far more powers to the mayors. Uh, of course, Toronto Mayor John Tory sounding today like this is something he would be happy with. During the last provincial campaign, Doug Ford promised to build 1.5 million homes over 10 years, and this certainly aligns with Toronto and Mayor Tory's priorities, where there is a fast short vast shortage of affordable housing. Here's Mayor Tory on that. I had a a meeting with him not too long ago, and in that meeting there was a passing reference to, um, you know, to we've got to find ways to get more housing built faster, Um, and that that was the sort of substance of it. And in the passing, it was mentioned that you know you have to be able to show to to show and exercise leadership in doing that. But that that was the substance of the conversation. That is the truth. That said, we we've heard from many people on the show today uh, who think that this would be undemocratic. Uh, among them, Ottawa City Councilor and mayoral candidate Catherine McKenney. Uh, she thinks this would be an undemocratic move, and we should not be concentrating power in the mayor's seat. Now, what do you all think, Zane Velji? What was your reaction to the news last night? Well, I mean, first and foremost, this is very much akin to the Doug Ford that we saw on the heels of the last time he was elected, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Where he mm-hmm. made major changes to the municipal uh, landscape in, in Toronto. I mean, listen, this guy, from a political standpoint, still wants to continue to govern Toronto, whether that's a legacy to his brother or whether that's just what he knows best uh, as a former counselor. This is what he wants to do. And you will see that he's using political capital on something he really didn't campaign on at all, let alone mentioned to do this. There's also a case for him to do it. The fact that you can argue that Ontario is is too overgoverned, that there's too many municipalities, you know, and we've seen this amalgamation over the past 35 years, you know, start being chopped down, reduced, reduced, reduced. So there is a governance excuse or rationale that he has here. But the question I would put forward is really the two pathways that we have. Is he going to modernize government by doing this or is he going to do this to consolidate power? Option A to modernize is a bigger question because cities are still the creatures of the province, their taxation powers, the limitations that they have on many things. Is this going to actually modernize and give cities more broadly? Let's let's put the mayor aside, cities more power, 
Or is it strictly a consolidation of power? We're going to see more regional governments, services such as ambulance and other services now be regionalized, be perhaps creatures of the province on their own. So there are two pathways here. For Doug Ford. And so I suspect that while we're excited about the news and, and it's very chatter worthy, it's really about focusing which pathway he's going to choose, because that will tell you his true intention beyond the obsession of, uh, of municipal government that he's clearly had for a very long time. Yeah, and it's interesting to note, I think it was 2014 that he uh, lost, uh, that the, the current, current Premier Doug Ford lost his then bid for the mm-hmm. mayor's seat to the current mayor, uh, John Tory. Tom Mulcair, what are your thoughts on this? Well, I think that uh, to Zane's point about big cities being creatures of the provincial government, of course, constitutionally and legally, he is 100% right. But if you really want to drive a big city mayor up the wall, tell him or her that they are just creatures of their provincial government. It drives them crazy Mm. because cities see themselves (laughs) as having their own existence. And some of the big cities, I mean, look at Greater Toronto. You know, that is bigger than any province uh, other than Ontario and Quebec in terms of population, scope, all the energy that's there, the whole economy, everything that those big cities represent. I think that Ford is onto something here in terms of streamlining good public administration. Is there a risk that some of the mega consultation that takes place right now that tends to bog things down somewhat? Is there a risk to that? Yes. Will some voices be less heard? Possibly. They've got to be mindful of that. But at the same time, we're overgoverned. We've got too many layers. We've got too many people. And I think that the overall idea of better, slimmer, trimmer public administration is a good idea. And obviously, Doug Ford would agree with you. Uh, Let's not forget that it was about this time during the last municipal election campaign in Toronto that Doug Ford used his premier powers uh, and his influence there to cut down the size of city councillor. I think it went from like 47 seats to 24 seats, essentially cut it in half. Tim Powers, uh, do you see a strategy here with uh, Doug Ford? Not making this announcement, Rob Benzie making this announcement for him apparently weeks early, uh, but right after he's just been elected again for another term as premier. Uh, I don't know what the specific strategy is, Tamara. I, I'd rather you ask me Zane's question. What did I think when I first saw it? <laughs> okay, and, uh, Tim Powers, what did you think in, when you first heard this last night? Well, I was in the middle of Labrador and I didn't give a damn. Because, you know, we don't really care about everything that happens in Ontario when you're in the middle it's of the center Labrador of the State. universe, Tim. Oh, I know. No, the center of the universe in the middle of the Labrador is the Atlantic salmon. That was more important yesterday. But I'll give it a go here for you today. And it's look, let me pick from both uh, Tom and Zane. You know, sporadically, this could be a good thing. It would depend on who the mayor is. But consistently, is this the best approach? Um, You can look at different mayors and different leaders in different communities and say, well, I wish that person had had more power to execute or uh, deliver what they had promised on and council stop them. It's the inconsistency that worries me and what that inconsistency could lead to. We are over-governed, but it's not just the structure, it's the people that are offering themselves to govern. If Catherine McKinney, who I was glad to hear you say, uh, opposed this, were, uh, had those authorities in Ottawa, you'd have a lot of people who were worried because they believe fairly or unfairly, and I'm a friend of Catherine's, that her agenda is too left-leaning, and that would have a major impact on the way she would govern, and that would affect property taxes and everything like that. So depends on the moment, depends on the time. I think more needs to be done before this decree happens. And let me tell you,
tell you the Atlantic salmon is still more interesting tomorrow. Can, can I just say, I have to come clean now. Everything I said in my answer was downloaded to me by a friend in Toronto who's very obsessed with this story. Because like Tim, uh, I am dealing with my own regional issues, getting over the stampede hangover, even though I don't drink. So I'm going to come clean on, on, on my response. <laughs> Uh, very thank you very much for that now we've just got a minute left but tim you raised an interesting issue uh or an interesting point there about it kind of depends on who the mayor is tom mulcair what do you think this will do to the municipal election campaign the mayoral race right now and and future races (laughs) well (laughs) there are people some cynics saying you know that perhaps mr ford is setting things up for whichever Ford family member wants to be mayor next time around. With whichever cousin also... or sibling or brother. Their nephew. There you go. Yeah. And they're saying also that, of course, the developers will, will love this. But but overall, I, I do think uh, that the notion of better public administration, making things somewhere. I mean, he already got into a big tussle with some of the more progressive forces, you know, my peeps mm-hmm. uh, in Toronto last time mm-hmm. around when he when he trimmed down city city hall. And I don't think that there's a single person in the GTA who's who's longing for the day where they had many more council members. I, they used to have like offices and quasi parties and caucuses. And I'm sort of going, okay, this is not the administration of a city. This is the administration of a mid-sized province. And and I think that Ford is coming down on let's make these cities let's get let's give them the chance to come up with decisions that make sense for their people everything is local now this is a basic principle of governance they call it subsidiarity we've got, we've got, the, we've got of- the oscars exception exception acceptance speech music playing we got to end it there but we will have more from the war room coming up after the break Listening to the Evan Solomon Show. Filling in for Evan, it's Tamara Cherry on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Thanks for joining us. We are into part two of the War Room. We have joining us today Zane Velge, Tom Mulcair, Tim Powers. We've got lots to talk about in this segment, so let's just get right to it. The turbines, the turbines just cannot go away for Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Yesterday, the Prime Minister defended allowing a turbine used in the Nord Stream 1 pipeline to be sent to Russia. This decision was a difficult one, but it was the right one to ensure that we continue to all stand together against Putin's illegal war in support of Ukraine. Tim Powers, how how do you think this is going to play out? This only makes sense, Tamara, if there's a, a trade-off here. And the trade-off isn't the turbine. The trade-off is what the Germans have been foreshadowing a little bit, and that is a couple of LNG uh, natural gas terminals in eastern Canada. Um, you have to think that's why the government is putting it, bringing it back on stream as quickly as possible, getting it through all the permitting hoops that it has to get through, taking the heat that it's taking both from the Lynch and others, because why would they want to do a favor for the Russians? They wouldn't. But doing a favor for the Germans, if it's going to mean opportunity for Canada, particularly with LNG, uh, is something the government should consider, of course. And that gets them to a place, and we've talked about it on this panel before, what are they then trading off with uh, many of their environmental community supporters who are already mad at them? for their investment in Beta Nord on the East Coast. So only makes sense if it's for a payback for uh, opportunity for Canadians to sell our product to Europe. Mm-hmm. Zane Velge, uh, you know, 
the reason that Justin Trudeau is defending um, this exception to the sanctions, of course, is because Russia said, surprise, surprise, uh, we might actually not be able to speed up um, oil being sent off to different yeah. parts of Europe. So what was your reaction? I mean, my political reaction, I, I laugh because I, I think Tim's analysis is just it's bang on. And, mm -hmm. and you know, there's when you look at it from a 30,000 foot view, from a political perspective, you're like, I see why there's such opportunity in being a liberal. You get to be this party in the middle that shape shifts to where the conversation is going. You get to pick your spots. And if it's not going well, you change your focal point. You're not ideologically bound. It sounds like the most promising place to be. And then situations like this highlight how it's so impossible for you mm -hmm. uh, in certain cases when you overreach. And let's look at elementally what, what this is for Trudeau. This is foreign affairs, a historical weakness, symbolism versus execution, a historical weakness for this government and for Justin Trudeau. And it's balancing off pipelines and climate, a conversation I bet he does not want to have right now as they try to push on net zero with, with Minister Gilbo. And I think it's it's situations like this that we're seeing that, yes, there's a trade-off to Tim's point, but highlights that if you are a government that is constantly trying to shape-shift, that situations like this can get you caught in three or four historic pain points that really beat you down to a pulp when you're already being hammered for having a government that's lethargic over the last six months post-election. So there's, there's really a lot of political downside when we look at the the Trudeau situation here. Uh, and I, I think that's the main sort of analysis that I've been looking at it through. Uh, of course, I agree with Tim that this is really to do with the upside of the LNG. The question then becomes, though, does this government get any credit for it? Because if they're going to mm -hmm. get the LNG projects, come back domestically and have to trade mm -hmm. that off for environmental upside, what the heck are we doing here anyways, uh, from mm -hmm. both and, and, and an economic perspective? That's my Tom rant. Tom O'Kerr, we missed anything in there? I would add two words, weakness and principle. That's mm -hmm. what Zelensky said Trudeau was showing in giving Russia more money to fight the war against Ukraine. And he said these decisions have to be based on principle. Mr. Trudeau went to Kiev. He personally raised the Canadian flag on our embassy and stood there and emoted about the importance of Canadian sanctions, which, of course, he's not enforcing. So he said two things in response to the predicted criticism. He said, well, from through Wilkinson, he said, well, you know, the permit to, to go around our sanctions, it's time limited and it's revocable. Hello, do you really think people are that stupid? The minute the thing is exported, the permit lapses and it doesn't matter anyway. And then with regard to what they're actually doing, of course, it is allowing Russia to have more funds to prosecute the war. It makes no sense. They sent in... And this was the icing on the cake. They sent in our Minister of Foreign Affairs, Minister Melanie Jolie, and she said, but you know what we're going to do? We're going to have more sanctions. So what? They're going to sanction some guy in the mailroom in Moscow. That's going to be their reaction. They don't even enforce the sanctions we have. And even though this is July and we shouldn't be talking about serious stuff, somehow Trudeau has managed to conspire to take, I love the way Zane wrapped it up, absolutely the worst possible decision and i don't care who's going to talk about lng terminals those things take years and years to build and they're nowhere near coming off the ground so this is unprincipled and it does show weakness and i think that trudeau that for him this has been a lose 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 across the board 
Uh, can I just quickly add, I think there, Tom yeah. makes up a really good point with this government. One thing I've been noticing is that they conflate ideological with principle. They don't want to be ideological because they want to be this government that gets to sit in the middle of the political spectrum and shape shift and choose bits and pieces of where the public is. And I think they conflate that, which is a political imperative, with the moral and, and ethical one, perhaps, which is principled. And I think it's that's what's gotten them into into trouble here, because at some point you're asking yourself, well, what do they really believe in when it comes to some of these big files? Hmm. On to another topic right now. Uh, I didn't think that the federal conservative leadership race could get any more interesting with everything that's happened, especially, you know, Patrick Brown being booted back to Brampton, though I'm sure that's not how he'd be painting it now. Uh, but something very interesting uh, coming to light of late, and that is from political commentator Tasha Carradine, um, who, of course, has been working with Jean Charest, who is one of the leadership contenders. And that is the idea of a conservative liberal coalition. Uh, Tom Mulcair, I'll go to you on this first. It seems to be a really interesting time, especially considering the so-called agreement that we have in place between the NDP and the liberals to be floating this sort of idea. Yeah, I mean, this is an attempt to institutionalize being in the middle of the road. Charest is looking at the gong show that he walked into unwittingly, because I don't really think he had the measure of what Pierre Poilievre's conservatives looked like. The Patrick Brown shenanigans, turfing him on the slimmest of pretexts, that's not going to go over very well with anybody who cares about democracy. The signal from the party is, we've already decided, Pierre Poilievre's taking over, forget about your second place votes, because nobody who was in for Patrick Brown's going to vote anyway. At the end of the day, the Zane, real question were you, were is going to... Oh, yeah, go ahead, sorry. The, the real question is going to be, is there going to be the creation of a new party? And I think predictably there will be a new party to come out of the ashes of this mess that they're in right now in the Conservative Party. I feel like there has to be. Zane, what are your thoughts? I agree completely. I mean, they're they're trying to preempt the results. They know it's Pierre's party. They're trying to ensure that they do the work that Pierre has almost refused to do, which is there is no indication this guy's going to moderate. There's no indication that he's going to do the, OK, now that this is over, let's call, all come into the tent together. That seems to be done. The scorched earth campaign that the Pierre side has run almost eliminates the possibility of the big tent model going forward. I Call me wrong. I could be surprised. And I think this is some of that work that uh, that the charade Camp and others, including this group called the Center Ice Conservatives, meeting in Edmonton this week, are, are trying to do to ensure that mainstream conservatism doesn't lose its foothold as one of the two, at least historically, governing options of this country. Tim, we've got less than a minute left. What are your thoughts on this? Well, I, all I would say is look at history. It just makes sense that this is about to happen. Now, every time conservatives have come out of government, gone into opposition, uh, there's always splintering. There's always fracture, uh, fracturing that occurs. It's pretty likely this go around. And I think the other thing that Tasha is arguing from a strategic perspective, you know, more moderates, um, if you want moderation, go with uh, go with Jean Charest. But, yeah, it's been about, what, almost 20 years tomorrow. It's time, you know, it's time for the new party <laughs> to have a new party. That's the way it works in conservative land. All right. Zane Belgi, political campaign strategist and partner at Northweather, Tom Mulcair, CTV political analyst and former NDP leader. And of course, that last voice, Tim Powers, chairman of Summa Strategies and managing director of Abacus Data. Thank you guys for joining us on The War Room today. Looking forward to the next round. I'll be back next month, actually, to join you guys. Um, coming up after the break, we have, uh, is it time for Canada to have a three-digit hotline uh, for mental health crises, similar to what it would be with what it is with 911. We'll discuss that after the break. 
This is the Evan Solomon Show with special guest host Tamara Cherry on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. It was more than a year and a half ago the Canadian MPs voted unanimously in favor of a motion by Conservative MP Todd Doherty to establish a nationwide three-digit suicide hotline. That was in December 2020. Here's what Doherty said in the House of Commons at the time. Given that the alarming rate of suicide in Canada constitutes a national health crisis, the House called on the government to take immediate action in collaboration with our provinces to establish a national suicide prevention hotline that consolidates all suicide crisis numbers into one easy number. One easy to remember three-digit 988 hotline that is accessible to all Canadians. Doherty said that we could leave a legacy of action by breaking the stigma associated with mental illness and mental injury and eliminating unnecessary barriers for Canadians who choose to seek help. Madam Speaker, I hope that as leaders and parliamentarians, our final act in our most challenging year is one of action. Because when minutes count, help should only be three digits away. A year and a half ago, more than a year and a half ago, so you might be thinking, all right, I didn't even know that there was a 988 hotline. Thank goodness I've never had to use it. Well, guess what? Surprise, surprise, it doesn't exist yet. And this, even after our neighbors south of the border in the United States, launched their own 988 mental health line hotline on the weekend. This was launched on Saturday. And once fully operational, it will offer residents struggling with suicidal thoughts an easy-to-remember number that will connect them with trained mental health counselors rather than law enforcement personnel. Joining us now is Dr. Allison Crawford, Chief Medical Officer for Talk Suicide Canada and a psychiatrist with Toronto Centre for Addiction and Mental Health. Dr. Crawford, thanks so much for taking the time. Hi, Tamara. Thanks for having me. So, I mean, what's it, what is, let's just start with the need here. Why do we need this hotline in Canada? Well, I think that having a suicide prevention line is uh, very important. It's an evidence-based solution that, you know, for anybody who is in crisis, uh, um, these kinds of lines can provide connection and support and hope and, and offer that without judgment you know, when people are in need. Um, so I think that there's a lot of rationale and uh, really key also is that we do have a national suicide prevention uh, line already. Um, and that is that's what Talk Suicide Canada is. Right. So we, we have this and I've referred to that line on the show uh, before, well, well, on the radio on uh, other days. But so what what would the difference be between what we have with that crisis line that is in effect right now and and what this three digit hotline would be? Right. Well, the three-digit would definitely offer an advantage in that it's very easy to re- to remember. So it would um, decrease any barriers to to access for anyone who is considering uh, suicide. Um, and also, it would be a service for people who are worried about loved ones. They could they could also call. So I, I think it just it provides additional an additional access point um, for people. Um, and and why it, why is it important? Uh, sorry, continue. Oh no, sorry. Uh, I, I think. Why? Why? why, why we, uh, sorry, we, I keep talking <laughs> over you. My apologies, uh, Doctor Crawford. Why is it important that uh, there that there would be something available that would uh, not put somebody in mental health crisis um, necessarily in touch with law enforcement and instead, you know, deliver them directly to uh, somebody with mental health expertise? 
Well, and I think that's exactly it. It's someone with trained uh, expertise. So the responders on this service uh, are trained. They know uh, exactly how to listen uh, without judgment and how to provide help in in those specific circumstances when someone is struggling with uh, suicidal thoughts or feelings or, or trying to help a loved one. So it's a more, it's a specialized uh, service. I mean, you you live and breathe this stuff every day. Uh, do you see this saving lives? Do you, do you see it making a dramatic difference? Absolutely. I mean, we have evidence that shows that connecting with somebody, um, receiving that kind of support when you're in crisis can decrease distress and help people help to keep people safe in the moment. And trained responders can also then connect people um, with other resources and other mental health support. So I think it's a very important part of, of the many ways that we offer uh, mental health um, supports to people. So this private member's bill was passed unanimously uh, more than a year and a half ago. Why do you think that we don't have this number yet? Um, I know that right now um, the Canadian Radio, Television and Telecommunications Commission, or the CRTC, which is an important, uh, an independent body, they're already, they're leading quite a comprehensive process of public consultation to introduce, um, to, to understand what the implications would be and the processes would be to introduce a three-digit number. And the federal government is um, looking at what the service uh, needs would be. And I think it's very exciting to see it happen in the States, um, to see it launched this weekend. But I know also they, they've they been working on this uh, since 2018. So, they, so when, do you think the, do you, when do you think we'd see it up here then? Um, I can't speak to the timeline. That really is with the CRTC. And, um, you know, as soon as we hear from them, um, I think we'll know more about next steps. Have you have you heard from anybody, uh, Dr. Crawford? We're speaking with Dr. Allison Crawford. She's the Chief Medical Officer for Talk Suicide Canada and a psychiatrist with Toronto's Centre for Addiction and Mental Health, but specifically because Talk Suicide Canada does uh, does run the the current one eight hundred number that um, is our crisis, our national crisis hotline. Have you heard uh, from anybody that that a long number like that can act as a barrier for people? Like, would would a three digit number make a significant difference for people who are in a moment of crisis? I think we are in support of having a three-digit number because we we believe it would um, reduce barriers to access. Uh, we we do also, um, you know, we have services online available through TalkSuicide.ca or ParlonSuicide.ca, mm-hmm. and we we do have the ten-digit number um, that is operational. Have Have you seen an increased need for for that service, Doctor Crawford, uh, through the pandemic? Yes, definitely over um, the last few years, the the service um, needs have increased. And I think that shows, uh, you know, what we're seeing more broadly socially, that there is increased um, psychological and and mental health distress. Um, We have not seen an increase in suicide um, rates or, um, you know, in, in like by the statistics, but we definitely know that people are reaching out and are in need, um, and that, that number has increased. Yeah, even if you see if you don't see the suicides going up, doesn't mean that people aren't uh, aren't suffering. Um, Dr. Crawford, is is there anything else on this issue that uh, you'd like to add? No, just to remind people that they can continue to call. I know you've mentioned the number before, but one eight three three four five six. 
1-800-273-4566 or go to talksuicide.ca or parlonsuicide.ca. And, and really that it's, it's very heartening to know that we all want to support each other and that there are services available for people um, when they need it. Yeah, you know, I got to say, I've been, I I know a lot of people have been suffering through this pandemic, but one thing that I think it has done is it's made us all talk more about mental health because there's been so many more people feeling those feelings of isolation. Um, You know, there's been people suffering from depression. Uh, I can speak to my own mental health struggles over the last couple of years. And I, and I have on, on past platforms, but I always appreciate people like you, Dr. Crawford, who, who bring these issues to the surface and help us amplify them. So thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Tamara. Have a wonderful day. That was uh, Dr. Alison Crawford. She's the chief medical officer for Talk Suicide Canada and a psychiatrist with Toronto Centre for Addiction and Mental Health. And if you missed the resources that she was saying there, I will put them on Twitter during the break at Tamara Cherry. That's at Tamara Cherry on Twitter. Uh, if, If you need help or if you know somebody who needs help, those resources are in place now. Coming up after the break, I want to hear from you because chances are you subscribe to Netflix or Disney or Crave or any number of the subscription services or Apple TV available in Canada right now. Well, Netflix hasn't been doing so hot. And I wonder whether you think uh, a franchise, a Netflix franchise, not unlike the Marvel franchise or the Star Wars franchise, could help out the Netflix brand. Give me a call, one 855 or send me a text message, 71010. I am Tamara Cherry, filling in for Evan Solomon, week, uh, Evan Solomon this week. Be right back after the break. Welcome back to the Evan Solomon Show. Today with special guest host, Tamara Cherry, on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. The big question of this segment, big question of the day. Can Netflix revive itself from the bad, bad press, the plummeting stock prices uh, of late? There is a plan in the works for Netflix to find its inner Star Wars. And I want to hear from you whether you think this will work. Give me a call, 1-855-633-1010, or send me a text message, 71010. I'm reading from a story by Reuters that Netflix broke Hollywood's rules to create an $82 billion global streaming colossus that the rest of the entertainment industry rushed to copy. But as growth slows, it is looking backwards for a way forward borrowing a page from Walt Disney's playbook. The Reuters story goes on to say, the company that changed the way we watch television and movies aims to emulate the success of Mickey Mouse and Star Wars by trying to build brands that traverse film, television, games, and consumer products, executives told Reuters in recent interviews. The story says Netflix teams are plotting ways to milk more from Netflix's bigger shows and movies with universes and characters they can return to again and again. The franchise strategy, details of which are reported here in this Reuters story for the first time, is meant to complement Netflix's efforts to build a vast library of original programming with something for every taste. So do you think this could work? 1-855-633-1010. Or send me a text message at 71010. 
Or do you think that, you know, the time for Netflix is, you know, heyday has, has passed there. There are so many different options out there now that were not available when Netflix launched all those years ago. Uh, I know in our household, we've got Crave, we've got Netflix, we've got uh, somebody else's Disney account. Uh, I, and we've got Amazon prime. Of course, we don't have Apple TV right now because there's nothing on there that we're watching, but we sort of dance back and forth between them. But I have been saying to my husband, you know, like Netflix, there's, there's some shows that we tune into, but overall for me, the content has not seemed to be as good as it once was. And one of the main reasons that we've stayed on Netflix as long as we have, I think is for the kids' content. Our kids get hooked on some of their shows, Paw Patrol most notably of late, but honestly, like my almost four-year-old, I've got a uh, an almost four-year-old, uh, an almost six-year-old, and an almost eight-year-old. My four-year-old is the last bastion of Paw Patrol in this house, and he's sort of starting to lose interest. He's falling in love with some shows on some of the other streaming devices. So I wonder whether that might be us it for us and Netflix. What do you think? one 1010 We are getting some text messages right now at 71010. Uh, one person writing in saying that they don't think that Netflix digging into a franchise, uh, trying to emulate what people like Stan Lee have done uh, will help necessarily. They say, I don't think it'll help Netflix as Stan Lee has passed away and no one compared to his writing to make Netflix a competitor. Uh, another person texting in, if Netflix, keep, Netflix keeps supplying me with Star Trek, I'll never cancel. That comes from Michael in St. Catharines. Thanks for that, Michael. Uh, you know, it's it's true. I, I guess they can, They but that is not their own franchise, Michael. Like they, Netflix didn't come up with that. It seems that more and more content on Netflix now has that little Netflix logo attached to it that it is their original content. So I wonder, Michael, if there's anything original, like, gosh, I mean, there's there's so many shows now. Uh, Stranger Things is one that people have been talking about. If Stranger Things kept expanding and expanding, is that something that would, would keep you on board? Uh, somebody else texting in, I will cancel Netflix if they limit service to one home only. We are paying $26 a month for me, my ex, and my two kids. What happens when I travel? What happens when I stay somewhere other than my home? And that is coming in from Drew. So thanks for that, Drew. You know, excellent point. Um, and one of the reasons that Netflix has been in the news lately. Uh, let's go to Mike from Etobicoke. Uh, Mike, what are your thoughts on Netflix's plans? What What's the alternative? Cable? which is absolutely horrendous on what they have on there. All those dumb game shows, dumb shows. You have either Netflix or Prime. You've got YouTube, which is free. You've got an antenna, which will get you as much channels that's local that you need. But Netflix, Prime, they'll be fine. Absolutely fine. But but that's the thing, Mike. There is an alternative to Netflix. You just named one of them, Prime, Crave, yeah, Prime, Apple TV, Disney. Basically, they, they, one will buy out the other one shortly, and it's all the same, pretty much the same stuff. So you pick your best one. I personally believe Netflix is, the, for me, the best one out there. A lot of great shows. Are, are there any Ozark, shows that you watch Peaky on Netflix? Blinders. Okay, so yeah, are there any shows that you, you watch on Netflix, Mike, that you could see becoming a, a big franchise, like the likes of, of Marvel, DC, Star Wars? Oh, for sure, for sure. They're going to probably find themselves the next um, 
Star Wars or the next uh, the dragon one there. What, what do you call that one? Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones mm-hmm. definitely will happen. Okay, that's some optimism. I like it, Mike. Thanks so much for your call. Have a great day. Text war is still lighting up. We've got a little bit of time left for calls if you want to call in 1-855-633-1010. But over on the text board, uh, you know, we had, I had recently read out that text about the, the cost of Netflix. Somebody else saying that if Netflix increases its price even one more time, they are out. They remember when it was $8. Was it $8? Okay, somebody else texting in $7.99 five years ago. I don't even remember that. I mean, I think we're still on the $9.99 plan in my household, but I don't want to pay much more than that. We're already paying a an arm and a leg for, for all of the streaming devices together. Somebody else texting in that Netflix has replaced mainstream Hollywood content with their own crappy content and now is paying the price. Well, I wonder if they can turn that around. Terry from Etobicoke, what do you think? Well, uh, I canceled Netflix a few months ago, and uh, recently I was at a friend's for a couple of days, and I scanned their Netflix, and nothing new. I I looked at Stranger Things. It's just this season, this new season of theirs is just the, the same as last season. I I couldn't get past the second episode. Um, however, what they're planning, I I think that's intriguing. If uh, if they do get that going, I might look at them again. But uh, to be honest with you. Uh, Prime has it, has them beat, and I can, yeah, Prime has them beat. Okay, I don't think I have anything else to say. (laughs) All right, Terry from Etobicoke, thanks so much for your call. Uh, And thanks for everybody who's been sending us uh, texts on the text board. Somebody else saying, get U.S. Netflix, Canadian is very limited. Something that has always bothered me, and I know there's all sorts of legal reasons around this, but something that's always bothered me about Netflix why can I not access content from around the world? My husband is from Brazil. We speak Portuguese with our kids. I would love for us to be able to access all the content that is on Brazilian Netflix that we can see when we go and visit his mother in Brazil or that she can watch here. There is some content, but not nearly as much as there is there. I think that could be a game changer for a lot of people if we could make content available from around the world on Netflix. But that does it for the Netflix topic today. And you know what? We're very close to... uh thrown in the towel for the entire show. So I'm very grateful to have been uh, covering for Evan Solomon this week. I will be back for one more day tomorrow. Very grateful to all the guests who joined us today and all the callers. Lots of reaction today to the news out of Queen's Park from Rod Benzie with his blockbuster scoop about giving bigger powers to mayors in Toronto and Ottawa. I'm sure that we have not heard the end of that and perhaps we'll talk about it tomorrow. But for now, that's it. I'm Tamara Cherry in for Evan Solomon this week. Have a great day.